Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we are excited to be welcoming back to the podcast Omar Shakir, who is the Israel and Palestine Director at Human Rights Watch. Omar, thank you so much for joining us again. An honor to be on again. Uh, so we were hoping to talk today about the origins and history of the recent blockade of Gaza. And we were thinking that it might make sense to just start in 2005 when then Prime Minister Ariel Sharon uh, pulled out of Gaza. So, Omar, maybe you could give some context for that decision of what was going on at the time. It's obviously in the wake of the Second Intifada. And then we could uh, go from there. Sure. And actually, if, if it's OK, I want to go for a minute before 2005, because I think it's important to sort of understand that context. Of course, Gaza is absolutely not. No, how dare you? No, please. Yeah, start whenever you feel it uh, would make the most sense. Uh, no, but what I was going to sort of say is that it's important to understand the role of sort of Gaza in uh, the first Intifada, actually, more generally as part of Palestinian society. So for many Palestinians, uh, you know, that were around in the 80s and in the 70s and the 90s, you know, Gaza was, uh, you know, a region uh, that people visited. It was connected to the West Bank. Uh, you know, people moved back and forth. They went to Jerusalem. They even went inside, uh, you know, uh, uh, modern day Israel. This is after 1967, of course. Before 67, there was a different history. But it's important to understand that the first Intifada, which started in 1987, a lot of the organizing actually took place in the Gaza Strip. And if you, you know, uh, read the books and the films that have been made about these periods, a lot of the protests and the boycotts actually began during that period. And, and, and Gaza was one of the, uh, you know, kind of beginning points of this. But of course, you know, in the 1990s with the peace process, we started to see, ironically, more and more separation uh, being built. Uh, policies being put into place uh, and uh, movement restrictions. And, and over time, those became much worse. So 2005, I think you're right to circle as a critical moment, right? So before 2005, the Israeli government maintained settlements in the Gaza Strip, very small settler population. At the time, we're talking about, about 8,000 or so Jewish Israeli settlers living in a territory that's 25 by 7 miles, 40 by 11 kilometers about, uh, in which there were at the time about a million, maybe a little bit more than a million Palestinians living there. So Ariel Sharon took the decision to withdraw you know, from the Gaza Strip. Today, the state of Israel took a step of great importance for its future. The government of Israel approved the disengagement plan I presented. Now, this is a decision that, you know, history has looked at a certain way, but actually, um, if you in Human Rights Watch looked at this in the context of our uh, report on apartheid last year, if you actually look at the policy, it, it took place at the same time as Ariel Sharon was uh, pursuing a policy to what was known as Judaize the Galilee and the Negev, in essence, to increase the Jewish population living in these two regions of Israel the Negev, and the Galilee, Galilee being in northern Israel, where there's a high concentration of the Palestinian population. Most Palestinian citizens of Israel live there. And at the time, Ariel Sharon actually went on TV August of 2005, speaking to Israelis and directly said, Gaza cannot be held on to forever. 
Over 1 million Palestinians live there and they double their numbers with er every you know, generation. So very clearly sort of making an appeal to demographics. And actually, um, Shimon Perez, who at the time was the deputy prime minister, directly said, we are disengaging from Gaza due to demography. So what does that mean? Let me just explain what that means. In essence, um, uh, Israel's underlying policy for many years has been to maintain, um, in, in essence, control over demographics and land across Israel and Palestine. So maximum land, minimum Palestinians. So in that equation, you have the Gaza Strip, where 9,000 settlers are living among 1 million Palestinians. And so it just didn't make sense to maintain that. So what Ariel Sharon did is he withdrew the settler population, Many of those settlers, by the way, were um, then moved to settlements in the West Bank. And there, were, there was actually many settlements ex that have you know, astronomically expanded in the West Bank since then. So in essence, it was a way to maintain a more solid, if you, if you want to use an American political analogy, it was gerrymandering. It was a way to sort of, you know, redistrict to improve the, you know, the demographic count. So retaining a Jew, because right now, today, across Israel, Palestine, you have effective demographic parity, almost equal number of Jewish Israelis and Palestinians. But if you remove Gaza, that looks more like 60, close to 60, 40 Jewish Israeli versus Palestinian. So that was you know, sort of the important backdrop to that decision. Let's remember, 2005, Hamas was not in power, you know, so that that wasn't part of the condition. In fact, you had a year before elections in 2006 where, you know, you, uh, you, know, you had PA everywhere, you had, uh, you know, Abu Mazen soon came to power thereafter, Mahmoud Abbas. So really demography was at the core of Israel's decision and security, which I can we will get to in our conversation, sort of came up as a later post facto justification. Omar, so, so where do you think this sort of transforming of the relationship between Gaza and the West Bank, how did that affect Palestinian national consciousness and, and the project, which relied on, uh, on connecting between the two? It's a brilliant question. And again, there's a lot of aspects to this, right? But the 2005 move precipitated a set of events that has contributed to the fragmentation of the Palestinian people. And the blame for that is not only with Israel, though a lot of it is there, but it's also with Palestinian political factions. So, of course, 2005, uh, you, have the sep you have the disengagement. Um, Israel also formally ends military rule over Gaza, although it does put in place control over many other means, right, including control over airspace, water space, movement of people and goods, you know, the connection of electricity infrastructure, water infrastructure, the collection of, uh, of taxation. Uh, we could go on and on and on, even the population registry that you need to get an ID. But the bottom line is the mechanics changed. And then, of course, you had Palestinian elections in 2006 uh, that saw Hamas uh, you know, obviously a political movement with an armed wing, as we discussed last time, that, you know, received a plurality of votes. There was a struggle, political struggle between Hamas and Fatah for control over the entire Palestinian, uh, you know, uh, West Bank and Gaza. It ended up in 20, 2007, with Hamas seizing control of Gaza and, the, and Fatah retaining control in the West Bank. Now, Israel has since 
implemented what's called a separation policy. This is a formal term, policy of separation between the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. What that means in practice is that the Israeli government's policy is to further separating these two territories, right? So while Israel, in the context of Oslo, recognized Gaza and the West Bank as one territory, its policy in the last 17 years has been to, to in essence, keep it keep them separate. What does that mean in practice? What that means in practice is that it's effectively impossible for Palestinians to move back and forth between Gaza and the West Bank. It should be as easy to move between Gaza and the West Bank as it is to move between Washington and New York. Although maybe that's a bad analogy. We know Amtrak isn't, you know, isn't, uh, you know, the best out there. But the idea is, let's say between, you know, Paris and Lyon or something, it should be relatively easy to move back and forth because this is one territorial entity. That's what the world recognizes every country in the world and even Israel in the context of Oslo. But actually, Israel's closure policy includes a prohibition on Palestinians going back and forth between Gaza and the West Bank. So in essence, you have that policy, which has you know very much torn up the fabric of Palestinian civil society. Human Rights Watch released a report earlier this summer uh, on the 15th anniversary of the closure policy documenting what it means for young professionals. So imagine you're an artist and the best art galleries are in Ramallah. They're not in Gaza, and you know, just like they might be in San Francisco and not in Fresno. And so, but you can't go to that gallery because Israel has this policy that's not based on a security criteria, right? It's based on, uh, you know, an overwhelming uh, policy, maybe a generalized threat that Israel's created, but really uh, a policy that's at core about demographics. And why do I say it's about demographics? Because I want to make sure that I'm, I'm, I make this point. If you study the statistics about the few cases in which Israel allows movement between Gaza and the West Bank, it's allowed one way. And this has been documented by Israeli groups from the West Bank to Gaza, right? So because that removes Palestinians from the demographic calculus. It's like favorable gerrymandering. So the point of me raising that is to say these kind and human rights watch has analyzed the statistics. So have Israeli groups like Gisha. It clearly points to that separation policy. Now, Palestinians deserve a lot of blame as well, because there is a political dispute between Fatah in the West Bank and Hamas in the Gaza Strip. These are power-hungry uh, individuals, many of whom are quite thuggish, quite authoritarian, uh, that don't care about the interests of their own people, that have furthered this political divide uh, for their own ends. And that is not help the Palestinian cause at all, uh, because we have a political division today. Uh, and that is... Uh, uh, being carried out by these Palestinian factions. So you add the Israeli policy to the di political division in Palestine. And of course, we now have a reality. It's really unfortunate that people don't see Gaza as really, um, you know, uh, a core, you know, it's almost an, an exceptional case. Even though and we can get more into this conversation, actually, many of the underlying human rights abuses in Gaza fit the same type of theme as you see in the West Bank and elsewhere. But we tend to see Gaza as a separate thing altogether. Omar, I wonder, still in this sort of preamble to the blockade, if you could talk a little bit about what it means when the United States, for example, spent years calling for Palestinian elections and for the Palestinians to democratize, for the PLO to open things up. You hold an election... And then the party the United States doesn't like, Hamas, wins the election and you go from, you have to hold elections, you have to hold elections, to 
we're going to sanction you and punish you because you didn't vote the way that we want you to. What effect does that have, not just sort of on the on the Palestinians materially, but on this, the whole, you know, U.S. role here? I mean, the rhetoric, the, the kind of uh, lip service that we pay to these sorts of things. Yeah, and just to underline what Derek said kind of at the end, what does this suggest about the U.S. role in this whole process at this point? Yeah, so that's a, it's a good two fingers. So let me start by a couple of comments on on the first uh, uh, point. Let me start by saying this is this is not unique to Israel Palestine, right? Uh, I used to cover Egypt for Human Rights Watch. We saw the same theme around the same time, by the way, in the parliamentary elections in Egypt in two thousand five, where in, in many ways the Mubarak regime almost for show allowed the Mo- the Muslim Brotherhood to win every seat they contested in the first round of elections, and then in the second and third they were sort of given the quiet nod to 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 repress some of those candidates. We saw the same thing happen there. So it's not a unique Israel-Palestine policy that the United States, when it comes to its promotion of democracy and human rights, has double standards, right? And when they don't like the outcome, that can lead to a different policy. But your question was about what does this mean to Palestinians and to Gaza? And, you know, um, what I would say to that question is to say, uh, uh, Derek, is to say that for Palestinians in Gaza, they have this view of like, what do you want from us? You said democratize. Okay, we did. And then you rejected the results. You starved the authority there. It led to, it's not just sanctions on Hamas. When Hamas, often the, the, the penalty that's taken, and by the way, the former defense minister, Avigdor Lieberman, when it came several years ago, said there are no innocent people in Gaza. It's a policy that's called collective punishment. It treats all, you know, limiting access to the sea for fishermen, you know, limiting movement of people. The sanctions taken against Hamas, limiting the, the ability to get money into Gaza, ends up affecting the general population. All right, but what I'm trying to say here is the person in Gaza says we we had elections, we had a result, and uh, and then you know that led to us being starved off. You say use nonviolence and. People in Gaza will say, look, in 2018, we organized the March of Return. It was grassroots. It was organic. Um, and for those who don't remember, these were protests that were organized every Friday, you know, right on the lands and on the fences separating Gaza and Israel, demanding an end to the Gaza closure and blockade and calling 70% of Gaza's population are refugees from inside Israel proper, calling for their right to return, which is recognized under international law. And what happened? They were methodically gunned down. Uh, with with orders and Human Rights Watch documented that Israel's use of force standards permitted firing on uh, unarmed demonstrators, a, a, a serious violation of international law. So quick facts about the Great March of Return. So far, there's been 7,900 injured, according to the Gaza Health Ministry, and 47 dead. Amongst the 47 dead, there are two journalists, five children, and two disabled men. And then, on the other hand, the armed groups who have committed serious abuses and crimes will say, hey, look, when we fire our rockets, all the world talks about Gaza, right? And you start to see interest and movement towards changing things. So actually, all these things together serve to actually the hand of armed groups there. And the people who are fighting for democracy and nonviolent resistance, and by the way, human rights, and let's caveat by saying between the times that we've spoken, uh, it, the Israeli government has raided the offices of six of Palestine's most prominent human rights organization after n- 
uh, last year, designating them as terrorist organizations and has interrogated the leadership. Some of these groups have been around for four decades. They're among the most prominent civil society groups, you know, in the in, in the third world, not just in the Arab world. So you look at it and Palestinians will tell you, look, we tried elections. We tried human rights advocacy. What about, when you talk about the International Criminal Court, they'll tell you that that's, uh, you know, anti-Semitic. You try uh, boycotts, you know, which have been used in struggles around the world. That's anti-Semitic, nonviolent. So it leads to a reality where Palestinians in Gaza feel that anything uh, but submission is deemed anti-Israel, anti-Semitic, terrorist. And they feel, and again, uh, this is not everybody, that um, that violence is the, is the only option. So, to, Danny, to your question about what does this mean in terms of um, America's role in the region, it means that America lacks credibility fundamentally, and it's not. It doesn't just hurt them in the Israel-Palestine regard. It helps. It hurts them around the world when the United States now is railing about, um, you know, rightfully railing about Russia's aggression against Ukraine and its serious violations of international law. Many around the world say, where are you when Israel is occupying and also aggressing and also committing human rights abuses? You know, how can you have different standards? And that's something people notice in the world. And so it hurts the U.S. credibility. Let's go back and, and talk about the in, the early blockade. And this is sort of a there was a, a bit of a it seems to me rocking the fridge period in sort of 2005, 2006 before finally in, in 07. This is just sort of permanently put in place can you talk about because i i i, I suspect there is a, a tendency to regard this as some uh, as a more recent issue it's been you know sort of the accumulation of 15 years of israel uh kind of squeezing gaza but there were people yeah, even in 2005 who said this is you're going to turn gaza into an open-air prison you're going to you're going to ruin the lives of these people can you talk about sort of the early stages of this and and the decision to imposed blockades and the effect that they had almost immediately on the ability of people to get sort of basic uh, basic needs fulfilled inside Gaza. Yeah, it's a critical point because we actually started to see movement restrictions in like the early 90s. Um, and so and, and, and then those increased. And of course, 2005, it created a different dynamic because when you don't have Israeli settlers there, it changes the way you interact with the territory, right? In the West Bank, you can't put everybody under closure, right? Because you have Jewish Israeli settlers who live in some cases across the street from Palestinians. So instead, you have to have a very, uh, you know, sophisticated regime that gives rights to one people and deprives the other, right? So which was the case in Gaza before 2005. But here, the strategy essentially was to, um, you know, put them behind a wall, literally, uh, exert control over the entries and exits, and use that as a way to um, to manage control. So look, in 2005, 2006, you had movement restrictions that were in place, right? Um, but they became much more dramatic in 2007. Um, and, and there you had the imposition of the generalized closure. When I say a generalized closure, what I mean is that there is a ban on anybody from Gaza leaving Gaza unless you fall within a narrow band of humanitarian exemptions. So it's not based on a security assessment. It's not to say, hey, uh, you know, Derek here, you know, did something, so we're not we're gonna ban him from traveling or we think he's politically active, right? It's saying everybody can't go unless you fit within a humanitarian exemption. So Danny, if tomorrow, you know, maybe you you know God forbid you need to do a life-saving surgery, you might get a permit to do so. But in a week, 
you've already been security cleared, you went, you came back in a week. If you say, hey, listen, I got a training for work, or I want to go on vacation, or I want to go to a friend's wedding, they'll say no, because you don't fit within the criteria. So, you know, you asked uh, about the effect, uh, you know, Derek, on the economy, uh, on, on life in Gaza, and it's uh, unbelievable. So the first three years, 2007 to 2010, uh, Israel actually banned most civilian goods from entering Gaza, including coriander, paper, chocolate. Um, There's actually a news report that Israeli officials calculated the minimum number of calories per person that Gaza residents needed to avoid malnutrition. And they based a policy around that. Although again, Israeli government denied that they based the policy. They said they just did the calculation. But at the time, they said they wanted to keep Gaza's economy on the brink, right? Since some of those restrictions have been lifted, so more goods are allowed in, though, you know, many, 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 including what are called dual use goods. So anything that can be used for military purpose, even like concrete in the most remote way, are severely restricted. But actually, it's the effect on exports that people don't talk about, right? So for example, Israel doesn't allow most vegetables or fruits out of Gaza, right? It's like only one or two, you know, depends, that varies, but it's not because, you know, um, tomatoes are, are, are uh, not dangerous, but corn is, right? It's based on economic interests. And there's a whole other narrative there, which we don't need to go get into. But, but what are these effects? What, what are the effects of these policies? GDP per capita in Gaza since the early 90s, again, back to your point about the gradual buildup, uh, GDP per capita today is less, about 23% less uh, let, let's let's say about 20% because that, that there's variance every year than it was in the early 1990s, right? 80% of the population relies on humanitarian aid. Uh, the majority of families spend the majority of their day without electricity. Unemployment, again, they've changed how they calculate it, but it's around 50%. It's close to 70 when it comes to youth. It's a majority young population. We could go on and on, but the point is the UN uh, back in 2012 said Gaza would be unlivable. Uh, by 2020. We're in 2022. Uh, water, it's about 97% of the water that's in Gaza unfit for human consumptions. We could go on and on through every sort of metric, but the bottom line is the closure has been at the core of many of these. It's not the only reason, there are other explanations, but it would be the number one principal one. So what does this suggest to you about what what's the plan, the Israeli plan, that emerges from from these tactics. And then again, what role does the U.S. imagine itself as playing here? I, I mean, I, I see, and, uh, and also maybe just to be frank, what, what's the real drawback that the U.S. sees from this? Because from what I could tell, rhetorical, you're not being you know honest about what you claim to be, but it doesn't seem like the U.S. gets any real blowback from this. Is that correct? So, I mean, in terms of what the Israeli policy is, I don't think it's an exaggeration because Israeli commentators say this all the time, that Israel has no Gaza policy. I published a piece, I think, since the time we last spoke called um, Cage, uh, Smother, Subdue, Repeat. That's how I described Israel's policy in Gaza, because that's basically what it is. Cage the population in open air prison, smother them with the economic restrictions I mentioned, uh, you know, subdue the hostilities that you know, we see from time to time and then repeat, right? And actually what's really fascinating is if you look at what part of Israeli society is the most opposed to the Gaza policy historically, it's been the army. 
because the army understands that it's not in Israel's security interest to keep two million people caged and in this sort of desperate situation. In fact, one of the former heads of the Israeli army in charge of Gaza called for a Marshall Plan, you know, because he understood that that would be a, a better long-term strategy for Israel's long-term security than the current policy. But of course, politically in Israel, right there, you know, it's a, it's a, and this is a whole other talk. It's you know, there's a drift towards the right, and you know, there's almost a competition about who can have the the most strong, hardcore. Um, you know, sort of disposition towards Gaza. So when it comes to the United States, and again, it's a much bigger point, the United States has failed to exercise its leverage to push towards better protection of human rights and a better future has for all Has failed peoples. or doesn't care? I mean, I, I think we should be precise. It's not, it's not that it hasn't failed. It hasn't tried, really. Yeah, that's fair. I, I was saying it has failed to. Um, yeah, I think you're right. Actually, given the sentence I put, probably doesn't care would be accurate. Well, I, I but just think it's important to like identify what's actually going on. It's not like it's it's failed to act good. It doesn't really care to, because it doesn't see it as in its interests to. And we might want to dig in why it doesn't see it in its interests to. But yeah, uh, but sorry, just trying to be. Um, no, no, no. It's it's a, it's a fair point, right? I would say the United States has turned a blind eye at, at the worst case, and, and and in some cases green lighted many of the Israeli government abuses. Now it's hard to generalize about the United States. You guys know well, you know, the interests and the, and the presidency versus Congress versus Defense Department. There's very different interests, but there is a confluence around the idea of sort of maintaining uh, a close relationship with Israel. And, and that has been interpreted by many to mean not speaking out or not using leverage for uh, human rights protection. Let me just say something. Even those that care in the U.S. political establishment about human rights in Israel-Palestine, they think about it through this idea of let's think about a solution or a peace process, right? But the thing is the peace process has almost become a fig leaf for the ugly reality today of apartheid and persecution, right? People sort of use it as a sort of rhetorical sleight of hand because when you're thinking about solutions, right, you almost forget about talking about the problem, that necessitates a solution. And you almost start thinking the problem is the lack of a two-state solution or something. You forget that the problem is, you know, these kind of policies we've been talking about, closure of Gaza, you know, the abuses around occupation, apartheid, all these kinds of things. So, yeah, I mean, I think, frankly, the United States, um, I think, has... Um, squandered an opportunity here um, because look you know it's not that it's it's god free there are voices in the u.s government within the democratic party within civil society if you look at polling data of democrats and young democrats and you even look at the last presidential election there are voices in the united states that are more and more speaking out about the reality on the ground and frankly the biden administration um is is, is out of touch right it's been trying to repeat platitudes that are stale decades old and are not keeping with where the base of the party is at. Uh, and it's also putting the U.S. outside of the mainstream when it comes to the international community. And you know what? It actually hurts U.S. credibility even on Russia, Ukraine. You go to South Africa and, or Namibia and they'll say, why should we support the United States uh, and what it wants in Ukraine when it's, in this, you know, this is happening, right? When it's doing the exact opposite thing on Israel-Palestine. So I think it's the United States' interest here to push for a better future for all people that live between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. And it's actually doing quite the opposite. And that ultimately hurts not only Palestinians, but it hurts the long-term future of Israel. 
Hey everyone, it's Jake here, just plugging our Substack, AmericanPrestigePod.com. There you can sign up for the free list or become a paid subscriber where you'll get an extra full episode plus a mini episode every week. Plus you can check out all our archives, reading lists, series, etc. So, AmericanPrestigePod.com. Thanks. So, Omar, one of the reasons I wanted to, to talk about sort of the immediate impact of the blockade is because there was a period of time, I'm sure you know this, I don't think anybody seriously tries to advance this argument anymore, but there was a period of time where you could hear serious commentators say, hey, look, Israel left Gaza. They left. They quit. No, you know, it's it's got, it's up to them now. It's up to the, you know, the government of Gaza or the Gaza, the people in Gaza to to manage their own affairs, which of course has never been true. And and I, I wonder, you know, using that kind of absurd argument with where this you know uh government that controls all the points of ingress and egress and uh, the airspace and the sea the water space uh, is somehow disengaged you're somehow disengaged from this this place uh, using that as a jumping off point i wonder if you could talk about you know i know we say on the show and, and i say this a lot you know international law is sort of a fiction but i think it's a fiction that's still worth talking about what are the the international legal implications of the the way that Israel is treating Gaza and and you know especially violations of the Geneva conventions and that sort of thing can you talk to that speak to that that aspect of of this please don't say international law is a fiction or you'll get me out of out of work i'll be uh, you know i'll be on the that's just my line. opinion and, and you know <laughs> it's it's you know it's it's based on i i i think international law is a great thing we should have it but uh, no, no, the no, United it's, States can do be, what it wants. It's a good idea. Any, <laughs> any consequences? Yeah, it's a good idea, but um, you know, it's yeah, it's, yeah. it's hard to say that it's actually impractical. It just doesn't function whatsoever, and, it, and it's hard to dispute you given the reality on the ground. It's not just Israel, Palestine. It's Russia, Ukraine. It's Egypt. It's Saudi Arabia. It's China. It's so many it's parts. It's Iraq. Of the world. It's Afghanistan. It's everything that the United States has done. Go down the list. But but you know I mean that's another debate for another podcast. But just to say you know the difference between non uh, enforcement and non you know normative value are different things. But but to answer your question about the international law in Gaza, let's start by the fact that Israel is the occupying power in Gaza. Um, you know uh, that's not just the opinion of Human Rights Watch; it's the opinion of the Red Cross. Uh, it's the consensus opinion of most countries in the world, the UN. It is because of the virtue of its effective control. So yes, it doesn't have ground troops that are inside Gaza that are formally running and issuing military orders. But all the metrics, and I won't repeat them again, I said in an earlier answer about how it retains this control over most aspects of everyday life in Gaza means that it so facto has the legal obligations that come with it. So as an occupying power, the the, the uh, number one obligation for an occupier is to ensure the welfare of the occupied population, right? And there's a lot of obligations that come with that. And one of those things, right, is to, uh, you know, ensure everyday life continues while the occupation goes on, right? And so one of the problems with how Israel runs its occupation when it comes to Gaza is that it has these sweeping movement restrictions, right? We're not talking about saying, which it would be allowed to do, hey, these people, you know, question marks, they're involved in an armed group, they can't enter Israeli territory. Nobody would dispute that, uh, you know, in effect. But it's different when you're saying nobody can travel. That's disproportionate. Uh, it doesn't meet the kind of basic test of international law. It's not based on individualized security assessment, right? So so I think uh, the obligation, and, and by the way, the obligation of an occupying power 
uh, it looks different in a one-year occupation than a 55-year occupation. When you've been ruling people for more than a half century, you have obligations because the, the uh, deprivation of rights uh, looks much more serious, right? It's one thing if you're occupying a territory, Gaza for one year and you say, well, you can't go to the West Bank for one year. Okay, you know, ties are, you know, ruptured, but they can be rebuilt. But 55 years that undoes social ties, that affects a society, right? Artists, maybe that biggest venue for art is in Ramallah. You're, de- you know, kind of purposely keeping down the potential of an entire society. So I think international law does provide us with an important framework. And it's not just humanitarian law, it's human rights law. Because ultimately, that's also binding on the Israeli government. And in both, requ- in both regards, Israel's closure policy is, is unlawful. The sweeping movement restrictions are unlawful. And for, the first step must be to lift these restrictions. We're not saying open the gates. You can have a policy based on individualized security assessments. But this blanket generalized travel ban, that's unlawful. Omar, I'm going to ask a big it's like, I understand what you're trying to do because you're operating within the system and you need to speak to American policymakers. But a generalized travel ban is obviously very bad, but so is these individualized security assessments, which are definitely going to be abused, which are definitely going to be used like willy-nilly. So I guess what I'm just trying to ask, to be frank about it, uh, is like, does this just indicate how, how, how much we have to go to get any form of real human rights here? To say that, okay, we don't want everyone being banned, but we'll allow you to do these sort of individualized security assessments, i.e. you could still kind of decide who gets in and who gets out based on kind of arbitrary uh, factors. Uh, I, I don't know. And if you don't, if you don't want to comment on that, we could cut this out. But yeah. I, I would, I would, I would add something to that, Omar, which is, yeah. I mean, you, you're stuck in this sort of nation state system, right? And nation states demand control over who comes in and out of their country, uh, who comes in and out of the country. They, they want this, these legal rights. And Israel, like any other nation state, is going to insist on having that sort of control. But it's different in this case because we're not talking about somebody trying to enter Israel from another country. We're talking about a territory that is under Israeli occupation unlawfully that has been brutalized for, as you say, 55 years, uh, the people there have had no ability to chart their own political course. And so I, I, I do wonder if even those, those basic nation-state rules uh, apply in, in a case like this or should apply in a case like this. I'm so glad you asked that question because you kind of hit at the point here, right? Because um, first of all, um, yes, let's be clear. International law gives a wide amount of latitude to governments with regard to the entry of foreigners, right? But again, it's different here because you have a situation of occupation. But even more than that, we're talking about movement between, let's talk about movement between Gaza and the West Bank, right? Like that's cannot be restricted because that's one territorial entity. Yes, you have to go through Israel because there's no physically, you know, contiguous route. But I think technology, there are ways to do that, uh, you know, uh, easily. And by the way, it's not just that argument. If somebody from Gaza went today, Gaza, Egypt, flew from Egypt to Jordan, and then went from Jordan to the West Bank, which you can do, Israel still would control that entry and would still ban people based on the same policy. More than that, Gaza residents 
want to be able to go in abroad. And the, the, you know, the only airport they're basically allowed to use, they're not allowed to use an airport in Israel, Palestine, right? Because the Gaza airport operated for two years, Israel bombed it, the, uh, 98 to 2000. There's an airport in Jerusalem, but in 67, when the occupation began, Israel, uh, you know, took it over, controls that territory, hasn't allowed the airport to be reopened. So Gaza residents either have to go to Jordan, and fly from Amman or go to Egypt and fly through Cairo. So if they had an airport and they could go to the West Bank, we'd be talking about a very different situation. And again, 70% of Gaza residents are refugees, many of whom from inside Israel who have a right to return to their homes. But if we're talking about entry to Israel, I mean, yeah, that's a different situation. But Danny, to your point, that I, what I wanted to say, in essence, is we have documented many cases of Israel overusing the security pretext. But I wanted, what, what I'm trying to do is not just you know, make a point for policymakers, but to make a point to the Israeli government, because they, they try to use these straw man arguments to defend a policy, when in reality, the, you know, their own policy by its own terms falls afoul of their own stated predicament, right? And so, you know, yeah, we could sit there and say this person... On what basis are you saying that this six-year-old or this, you know, uh, person is a security threat, right? But like, you know, I do think if you lift the generalized closure and we are dealing with individualized cases, uh, it would be progress. We would still fight those individualized cases, but you know, ultimately we have to get out of this reality. And and the and the, let me just conclude this point by saying free movement is so critical to the realization of other rights: the right to work, the right to you know health you know, the, the right to um, education, all these things are impacted by whether or not you can move freely. So that's why for Human Rights Watch, the number one priority in Gaza is to lift the closure. Let's talk about um, the periodic Israeli bombardment of Gaza. And again, I'd like to talk, I'd like to frame this in terms of the Israelis are pummeling and occupied people this is not a, another nation threatening israel this is these are people that that israel has um occupied deprived of rights deprived of freedoms uh that we periodically you know they periodically trigger that maybe triggers a response some kind of response from gaza but the israelis are happy to continue doing this on some level and i, I know you you talked about the military aspect of this and the israeli military doesn't really think that having this festering wound essentially or this you know this this situation kind of uh constantly creating security threats uh doesn't you know they don't appreciate that but i think on a political level they do and i would point to this most recent bombardment which we talked about in our our uh, special episode when you were with us last time uh where the israelis essentially invented a security threat they arrested a, an islamic jihad leader in the West Bank and then decided that that arrest was enough to trigger a you know, cause for preemptive bombardment of Gaza, I would argue in part to make the interim, current interim Prime Minister Yair Lapid look tough on Gaza and bolster his security credentials ahead of the election, ahead of the election in November. And, and this is the kind of pattern that I think you see anytime an Israeli leader wants to look tough. If there's an election coming up, there's a political crisis when Netanyahu is facing his legal trouble. Let's go bomb Gaza and kill a few Gazans and that'll, you know, take the headlines away and uh, everybody will cheer for that. Can you, I, I, I've, I, this is kind of a rant, but can you sort of uh, put that in, in context and, and help people understand what role 
these periodic bombardments of Gaza play in, in Israeli politics and, and just the, the sort of trade off between the human life in Gaza and, you know, what, what Israeli politicians try to do to, to gain support? Yeah, I mean, it's part of subduing the Palestinian population in Gaza, right? It's part of asserting domination and it periodically needs to happen. There are, you know, obviously varied motivations. And as we talked about last time, there was really no clear provocation uh, in this case, no apparent provocation for the unleashing of, of the bombardment of the Gaza Strip, right? And so I think um, ultimately it's it's a larger problem because, uh, you know, it's clear that the Israeli government dominating Palestinians is a part of their strategy. They use different tools to, to reach that. In, depending on a variety of factors. And obviously, it's been a much more militarized, violent, uh, you know, let's say hot violence versus the cold violence of the structural oppression in the West Bank when it comes to Gaza. But frankly, it's it's part of asserting that domination. It's part of often, you know, sort of signaling messaging for different constituencies. But it ultimately comes down to Palestinian life is devalued in Gaza uh, and, and, and throughout Palestine, but in Gaza specifically, right? That like, if you go within Israel today, you know, Lapid's conduct during these hostilities is seen as a positive, right? As, as him having asserted his leadership and uh, shown his uh, vigilance in combating Hamas. Israel carried out a precise counter-terror operation against an immediate threat. Our fight is not with the people of Gaza. We will do whatever it takes to defend our people. And so it just shows you where the, the, the political discourse is there. And it comes to, you know, the bottom line of devaluing Palestinian life, asserting domination. And these are core to Israel's apartheid. It manifests in different ways, but whether it's hot violence in Gaza or cold violence of structural oppression, uh, you know, Palestinians everywhere face it. And it's part of apartheid. These systems are maintained not just by Israel, they are enabled by other actors, uh, the United States being obviously chief among them. Uh, but in terms of regional players, you know, one of Gaza's borders is against Egypt. It's not even against Israel. And the Egyptian government, with the exception, I would, I would say, of the uh, brief period when they had an elected Muslim Brotherhood-led government, uh, uh, sort of 2011 to 2013, uh, the Egyptian government has done everything it can to enable uh, the Israeli blockade to, to you know, make this possible. The Palestinian Authority, I think the next time Mahmoud Abbas says something critical uh, of Israel's treatment of Gaza would be the first time. I mean, I've never heard him say uh, anything other than, you know, sort of tacit support for, for what the Israelis are doing. Uh, can you talk about these actors, and even if you want to go broader to talk about uh, the Abraham Accords and and what that's meant for, um, you know, just regionally kind of having these these Arab states essentially sell the Palestinians out to to engage in uh, normalization with Israel and you know win get goodies from the United States. I'm so glad you br you brought those things in because yes, Egypt has absolutely been a huge part of the closure policy. Uh, you know, it's it's at various times sealed its border with Gaza. We've done research on its policy towards Gaza, and uh, even when it's m opened the border more often. Of course, let's be clear. Egypt's legal responsibility is different than Israel because it's not the occupying power. So in that sense, the more general authority to open to restrict entry to foreigners, that's a prerogative they have. But, you know, when you're complicit, uh, being complicit in crimes against humanity and sweeping movement restrictions, that's something that international humanitarian law doesn't allow. But Egypt, even when it allows Palestinians to cross, often people are humiliated. Uh, they're made to wait days, 
uh, weeks even to be able to be permitted to travel. They're denied entry, sometimes on an arbitrary basis. Uh, we've documented how to even get your name on a list to leave Gaza. If you want to do it quickly, you have to pay hundreds of dollars and what looks a lot like bribes to bi- Egyptian businesses that have ties to the security services. The PA absolutely has been uh, you know, played uh, unhelpful at best role, the political divide, but also, yes, the PA has at times called for punitive measures against Hamas that has taken a toll on the civilian population. Uh, Hamas and the PA are themselves uh, repressive um, entities that undoubtedly uh, their rights abuse are a core part of the repression of the Palestinian people that needs to be acknowledged. And yes, the Arab regimes around, uh, even those that rhetorically speak about Palestinian rights, for too often, not only have have utterly violated the rights of their own people. I mean, we're talking about brutally authoritarian regimes in the region that care little about human rights or the rule of law, but, um, you know, for their own citizens, much less for Palestinians. But obviously, you know, the, 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 these agreements between Israel and these Arab states have been about repressive governments who have committed war crimes and crimes against humanity more openly, um, you know, uh, engaging to further their own interests, often their parochial regime interests, you know, with trade deals around spyware and, 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 and anything else. So it's not so much they sold out Palestinians. I mean, these regimes have done that for years and decades for the, for, for the most part, but it's now, it's now, um, uh, being used uh, as a way to remove what little motivation the Israeli government may have had to, you know, change its policy towards Palestine that's being removed because it's getting all the benefits of um, relations with, with the Arab world without having actually taken any step to, um, to end its apartheid. Omar, before we go, are there any final comments that you want to leave listeners with who might not be overly familiar with this case or what they can do to try to make things better, considering that most of our listeners are living within the United States? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's important, uh, and I'm so glad you had this follow-up conversation. I think really a credit to your podcast because so many people you know, have, have people like me on during when there's you know, bombs flying. It takes sadly kids being blown up for you know people to talk about the situation in Gaza and then it's forgotten about and you kind of go into this pattern of you know forgetting about it and then till the next time this happens so this conversation is was really great in part because we had a chance to dive a lot deeper into into these issues and so I would encourage listeners you know uh, who want to understand more about Gaza read um, we did a report in June uh, that looked at 15 years of closure you can find out human rights website, Israel's Open Air Prison at 15. Um, You know, I encourage you to read that. Hear the testimonies that we collected of people in Gaza. Read our apartheid report, A Threshold Crossed. Google that, Human Rights Watch, you'll find it, because we provide a larger context on these issues. And, you know, speak out on these issues, because there is a shift starting to happen in the conversation, but it's going to take more and more people who call reality for what it is for that, for the world to recognize that reality for what it is, for then it to take the sorts of human rights uh, steps that the situation like this warrants. So thank you for everybody for listening. I hope you'll read more and I hope you'll act and speak out. Omer Shakir of Human Rights Watch, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.